Hey, common scientists. This is Lauren, Dre, and Aiden coming to you this week on Common Science with the topic of shoes. So what's on your feet right now? What do you usually wear? Are you a tennis shoes wearer? Are you a barefoot kind of person? Uh, maybe this says something about your personality. Maybe it says something about your gender. Who knows? We're going to talk about it, though, today on Common Science. So remember, common science, keyword common. We are not experts. We are coming to the table to discuss a topic that will hopefully allow us some learnings and maybe allow you or aid you in some value in your life. So this week, fascinating topic, the topic of shoes. And I want to start out by tossing it to the boys and asking them, the men, and asking them uh, how aware they are of their footwear. How aware I am of my footwear. I I feel like I probably am pretty aware. I've definitely had people talk to me about, oh, like, Dre, you have so many pairs of shoes and this and that. I think the reason why I generally, like, don't identify as, like, a sneakerhead or, like, a shoe, whatever, or, like, think I'm more aware than others is because I played basketball my whole life, and many basketball players are just known for the sneakerhead culture, known for their obsession with shoes. And rel- so relatively, I've been like, eh, I don't really care too much. Like, I'm down for whatever looks and feels good. But, yeah, I definitely have become more and more aware. And that's why I was partly, partly why I was kind of excited for this podcast, because I'm watching all these videos and reading all this stuff about foot health and the importance of not just the form and look of your shoe, but also the function of it as well. I am not so aware of my footwear. I am starting to become more so, uh, yeah, because of a lot of that kind of conversation around finding the right shoe and how that can uh, impact a lot of things uh, in the long term. I did learn that I was I had flat feet when I was uh, in middle school or something like that, but I just kind of ignored the advice to get insoles and just kind of kept at whatever I've been doing which is just wearing shoes and and rocking it which maybe I wasn't rocking it so so much but um <laughs> yeah I, I don't know that's when I first became aware of it but I kind of brushed it off and kind of continued to live in my head because yeah as the other team members know I, I'm not the most stylish or most aware of what I'm wearing but yeah more uh i i'm pretty aware of shoes i think i have maybe 30 pairs of shoes which is a lot a lot a lot of shoes um and i think i probably became quite aware of fashion associated with shoes and with women's footwear especially partly because of sports and there were specific shoes for volleyball and track and then I would say also because I competed in pageants in the Miss Minnesota Miss America system and so I early on learned a lot about heels a lot about shoes as well And I'm pretty conscientious of it today if I'm trying to be stylish, but more and more I am dressing for functionality, especially since the 2020 pandemic uh, really taught me that 
sometimes functionality is is key there are more instances where I'm finding myself going to the grocery store in Crocs, which before 2020 I would not have done ever. So that's been an evolution in my shoe conscientiousness and also my ability and willingness to say screw society. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's probably for the better. I had a reprimand M the other day because we were at Jay Cook in um, State Park or whatever it is. And she wore like she wore these like kind of like hiking type of sandals that were really cute, and they were fine. But I told her wear your Merrells or Morels or whatever that you mm-hmm. got. Yeah. Um, and I told her beforehand, and then she got there, and like Jay Cook is like super like clay and oh just, yeah, like, you, you need hiking boots. Yeah. And yeah. she comes with like, and I was like, girl, what are you, what are you up to? And she was like, <laughs> I know I should have did it, but I was trying to look cute, and I'm like, you do look cute. But <laughs> like look cute in hiking boots. Yeah. Right. So definitely, you know, as we've gotten older and wiser, hopefully, you know, we've definitely come to appreciate the functionality of shoes. Yeah. Yeah. We're- I wanna I wanna touch on the discomfort of shoes later, maybe as specifically of women's shoes. But let's go to some of the history first. So I was fascinated to find out that the first shoe that was ever uh, discovered was actually from Utsi. And so I remember this this research or this discovering of, of Utsi. Do you guys remember when that happened? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Aiden, do you remember? I have no idea. What? You guys don't you're know? You're going to have to explain maybe Utsi I'm saying, to us. Yeah, maybe I'm saying the name wrong or something, but... Um, <laughs> There was a fully uh, preserved woman that was discovered um, from like years before our era, era 3,300 years before our era, um, a mummified yeah. human named, I think, Utzi, O-E-T-Z-I, from the Stone Age, one of the earliest human remains that have been um, recovered. It was discovered in 1991, I think repopularized later too. And these these shoes that were found were made of, I think, two different types of skin, like deer skin and bear or something like that, and were stuffed with straw to help, to help insulate. So fascinating that it was so long ago, you would think that people wandered barefoot, but there was clearly intelligence thousands of years ago so i thought that was fascinating yeah like if i was watching like 10,000 bc and everybody had shoes on i'd be like huh what's but now you know who knows because yeah. you, are you saying 3,000 years before um zero or are you saying before human history so this says before our era um, okay. and i don't know exactly what that means but the stone age is the age oh okay i see okay gotcha gotcha. so a long long time ago she was where was she discovered again um i think she was discovered at the border of austria and italy border of austria and italy so that for those of you who don't know your geography or you're less familiar that would be the alps or Mm -hmm. at least that she would have either been in the alps which are uh is a mountain range that can get quite cold. Uh, the other thing just in general is that makes a lot of sense why that would be the first place where we would find shoes uh, within Europe because, I mean, we all started from Africa uh, and then spread out. But per our clothing uh, podcast, clothing became much more 
prevalent uh, in Europe because it, it was cold there. Right. Compared to in a lot of African nations. So that makes sense, the insulation thing. Like, yeah. And I think a big part of the reason that obviously Etsy was discovered from so long ago was because of the cold climate in where the, the remains were found. So there could have, of course, been earlier versions of shoes elsewhere. But mm. these are the earliest version that we have found. And they were not just sandals. They were a shoe that covered the whole foot with insulation from straw made of two different types of animal and uh, were preserved quite well. So I was fascinated by that. I picture people just wandering around barefoot, I guess. Yeah, yeah. for sure, for sure. And I also think we have this conception that we just became intelligent not that long ago or something. Like we are just holier than thou because Mm -hmm. we are, I don't know, 20th century people, but (laughs) like clearly they had some things figured out. Yeah, yeah, I definitely have that bias where I'm like, yeah, we're way smarter than they used to be. It's like, no, you just have more knowledge. You have more, you know, recorded history, but like, yeah, right. It was like, no, they're pretty, pretty ingenious back then as well. Yeah. And then the first sandals emerged, I think, in ancient Egypt and they were made from palm leaves and papyrus fiber and raw leather. So I think of the shoes that I wear today and how far things have come in synthetic materials and rubber and things like that. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine walking around in palm leaf shoes, but I think that's also extremely fascinating that people realized early on protecting their feet in some way would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love those. Have you guys seen those memes like on Instagram or Reddit? It'll be like the Pharaoh threes and the Jesus elevens and stuff like when they show like these just ridiculously no. old timey looking shoes yeah, or just like these man, you know, fabricated shoes. It'll, yeah. just, it'll be just like Lauren's talking about. It's right. so funny. Jesus elevens. <laughs> <laughs> man, that's hilarious. Where did your research start you off, Dre? Uh, so a lot of my research was sports leaning since, <clears throat> you know, I, I used to dribble a basketball from time to time. And you one used of to the dribble basketball, you played. <laughs> I was okay. Um, <laughs> so with sports shoes, so that's obviously a huge, huge industry. It's obviously mm-hmm. booming now. Everybody knows, just like Lauren talked about, like there's a different shoe for every single function. It's not 1910 where everybody just had yeah. the ankle boots and that just, it is what it is. But speaking of the ankle boots, fun fact one of the first basketball shoes so actually so basketball was invented by james Nysmith in 1891 and it was very soon after that they actually invented the first basketball shoe however the first like super famous like popularized basketball shoe was the chuck taylor otherwise known as the commerce all-star and mm. people have kind of thought that it was kind of high top in order to protect the ankle which we all know how flimsy they are. They're not protecting anything. So actually um, what I read was that they were actually made that way in order to reflect the current men's fashion at that time, which was ankle boots. Hmm. So that was kind of cool. That was kind of a cool idea because I had always wondered why Chuck Taylor's looked that way, why anybody thought those were acceptable, et cetera, et cetera. And I, going again, talking about the function of shoes, there was this huge debate as a kid where... Uh, most basketball shoes when I was really young were high tops essentially, right? So you could tie it tightly around the ankles so you wouldn't have all these ankle sprains, which ankle sprains are the most common injury in basketball. Mm -hmm. I think it's about 25% of all injuries in basketball. So big issue. And I remember 
it was actually in like 2008 where Kobe Bryant came out with a super famous, um, Kobe Bryant and Nike came out with a super famous shoe um, that was low top. And of course, a lot of people, these all these traditionalists, right? These, yeah. <laughs> these fundamentalist basketball players were like, hold up, low tops? Like you're going to be spraining ankles left and right. Yeah. But the greatest player in the world at that time w- was the one who put them out. So everybody's like, ooh, these are actually really, really cool. And they blew up. And now... It's like, I think I saw a statistic um, in the article by Inside Science where it said that it's about 50-50 for high tops and low tops in the NBA. But I think like in college, like everybody, like if you weren't rocking low tops at my college, my university playing basketball, it was like you were definitely on the outer crowd and all that type of stuff. And then you'll see like a lot of like post players or players who aren't supposed to be as flashy wearing high tops. But for the most part, like if you don't have the low top Kobe's or whatever it might be, KDs, it's like, you're not really rocking. You're not with the times. Yeah. Right, exactly, you're not. So on the kind of huh. fashion sneakerhead side of things, there's that. And then on the more scientific side, um, there's been a you know, plethora, of, not plethora, but a number of studies now that for the most part that have shown very little evidence that a high top or a low top significantly impacts function in and of itself hmm. or impacts ankle sprains at all. Because if you think about ankle sprains, the reason why basketball is so prone to it is because of the jumping, right? Mm-hmm. And the more you jump, the more likelihood that you land on somebody's ankle. Because yeah. you're jumping in these very crowded spaces in basketball. And no ankle support is going to be strong enough. Maybe a really, really strong ankle brace will help. Mm-hmm. But like no shoe no, is really going to yeah. stop that level of force coming down. So there isn't really any reason to think about that. Huh which is kind of, I'm still kind of a high top guy. Yeah. Like in my head, I'm just like, I had a, quite a bit of ankle sprains as a kid and I'm still like, oh, I gotta need my high tops. But yeah, but then I did see like there, are, there is some evidence that isn't conclusive, okay. but there's some evidence that high tops actually can cause you to stress out, like get a, uh, Achilles tendinopathy more often. Interesting. And I was like, no. So I didn't look into specific research about high top versus low top uh, and definitely not specific to basketball, but I did watch with Aiden a documentary that talked about Tinker Hatfield and his journey designing the Air Jordan. And as a as not a basketball player, what he said that resonated that you didn't just talk about were the quick stops and turns that Mm -hmm. basketball players often have to utilize. And I think that what Tinker was saying was that uh, for quick stops and turns, not so much about rolling your ankle, Mm -hmm. but for those things, a lot of players enjoyed a little additional structural support. But the thing that I thought was so wild that he said in this documentary was that and he knew that um ultimately shoes are not serving their highest purpose because what really would be needed would be a shoe that could loosen up when you're standing around to do a a free throw and then tighten up when it really does need to be tight for those quick turns and Mm -hmm. things because he explained that if you look at a basketball player who's been playing for a long time and examined their feet after 10 or 15 years of professional ball that their feet are just looking awful like yeah i mean that they have taken so much wear and tear and damage and so really what a basketball player would need would be a shoe that knew when do you need to be tight so that you can do quick turns and things and when do you need to be like loosening up so that your foot can breathe and so I, i thought that was so fascinating to have such a versatile 
complex scientific approach to a shoe i was just blown away yeah no for sure um a couple things first off yeah i think i mean tinkering what you're bringing up is definitely on to something i think it's a little bit more complex or a little bit of a different reason than you would think for a high top shoe which you're talking about with the cutting and the changing mm-hmm. directions and all the ankle stuff so number one a lot of the a lot of cited or a lot of players cited um liking low cut shoes because they felt like they had more ankle freedom actually they actually felt like they had more ankle mm-hmm. mobility and i've heard that like that was in the stu- oh, that was in the article but also i've heard that personally like people feeling too constricted by high top yeah. shoes and then also there was um in a study they did with uh taping taping ankles mm-hmm. so there's people think that the reason why ankle tape or whatever would protect you is because it's tightened stuff up so it makes you sturdier but over the course of a game, it doesn't take long for that tape to get loose. So what they have theorized is actually, the reason why it helps is actually because of proprioception, because the tape is touching your ankle, it's actually sending signals to your brain. So your brain is actually more receptive to changes and possible risks in your ankle so that your muscles can brace for things. Wild. Yeah, so that was interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I also hadn't thought prior to the research for this cast much about caring for my feet outside of going to a nail salon, which seems really um, <laughs> very, like different. very different things. But uh, I just connected it also <laughs> listening. Super different things. <laughs> I mean, but really, I, but I just, yeah, it's fair. I connected it while we were watching this um, documentary and Tinker Hatfield was talking about people just destroying their feet in in a basketball career specifically because that's what he was used to and yeah. after so many years um and i like thought to myself when is when is a time i have been conscientious of caring for my feet yeah and the only thing i could think of was when i might go get a pedicure and someone like like mm, sands off that's not the right word <laughs> like when someone like scrubs your foot mm-hmm. and makes sure that like everything is exfoliated and i think that's the only time i've ever thought about saying to myself wow i'm really taking care of my (laughs) foot right now right right. i rarely have ever gone to the store to buy a shoe saying oh i'm gonna keep good care of my feet Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. so i have worn shoes till they're totally broken down i mean the air in the bottom of my running shoes is like the it's burst if it's gel it's burst or whatever and there are holes in them and I just cannot run in them anymore. They've started to cause me pain, which is probably miles and miles after I should have gotten rid of them. Mm. So I, yeah, it was just this fascinating experience of research. And I was like, man, uh, common science is telling me that I should maybe take better care of my feet. Yeah. Dumb. <laughs> ask and some maybe, questions. Yeah. And ask some questions. Run yeah, some why, experiments. Why do my feet and look like that? I was like, like what why? is this inconvenient <laughs> truth? I might actually have to buy shoes that are meant for things. Dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Fun fact I went to the doctor a couple months ago and I had them check out my feet. And this doctor was just like looking at me and asking questions or whatever. And then he just mm-hmm. looks at my feet and he's just like, you just have basketball feet. I was like, yeah, okay. basketball. Yeah, thing. I was like, is this a condition? Like, <laughs> or is this something I can be treated for? He's just like, nah. He's just like, on. you know, obviously it's just kind of seems weird. It's like two grown men. I got my feet up and my toes out. And he's like playing with my toes. And he's just like, those are just basketball feet. And I was just like, <laughs> I 
okay. And then obviously, did, like, did he, he didn't explain what that meant. At all? Well, he just like he just like every time I see basketball players, people who've been playing basketball for years and years, they just look like this. They're just beat up. They're just Dang. they're bruised. They're this. They're that. They're just, like all these things, just like Tinker was talking about. Yeah. And then I was just like, okay, I went home, and then a month later, got that three hundred dollar bill to get told that I had basketball feet. So, shout out oh, to the healthcare man. system. Shout out to the U.S. healthcare system. But uh, man, that's 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 bonkers uh that yeah just oh yeah basketball feet i would think basketball would be one of the most intense sports on your or like one of the most stressful sports for your feet i'm trying to think of anything else that would compare just because there's so many quick turns like tennis was another big one in the documentary Mm -hmm. because when a player uh, is switching directions Uh, i think it's when you're switching directions a lot that it causes a lot of stress on your feet and can lead to some of those ankle sprains but yeah any other sports you guys think might be i mean there's shoes for every sport too yeah Mm -hmm. probably football you're also elevated on cleats and it's a lot of the same things as basketball Mm -hmm. i think the biggest difference between basketball and several other sports is the ability to like is the you have to jump in crowds and land Mm -hmm. you know and then that's where all the sprains like even if you don't get a sprained ankle it's still like more abuse on your feet versus like football they do some jumping, but you don't usually land on people's ankles when you're jumping. And if you do, right. you just fall to the ground. Yeah. Right. You don't try to stay up and sprain your ankle. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. The other thing that I think of is potentially cross country because a lot of it is not on like groomed terrain. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah. While there's not a lot of jumping and quick turns, they might run a whole course on quite uneven terrain. And I think that could probably be. At, like outside of the 20 miles that some of those runners are putting on a day plus depending on the runner uh i would think that that would also cause quite a bit of stress if they're doing a lot of running on uneven terrain but i don't know that's a fascinating question to think about though. have you ever put on uh, ice skates uh yes a few being times. being in minnesota man there's nothing that feels better than taking off a pair of ice skates <laughs> Like having those puppies on, you got to tie them so, so tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause if you don't, it's a way harder to turn. Um, but yeah, that's a whole different kind of shoe. Uh, just was that popped into my mind. I totally disagree. Until you've walked 10 or 12 hours in a pair of six inch high heels, <laughs> you do not know what it means to what be it? satisfied when you take off a shoe. You just yeah. don't even know. Yeah. 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 So I think your guys' research brought you guys into some high heel stuff, right? Yeah. Launch us with it. What's up yeah. with high heels? Yeah. So hey, you've got to definitely touch on that. Okay. I'll drop a little knowledge that I came across. So. What was fascinating, what was super fascinating to me was that high heels actually started with uh, men wearing them. Uh, So high heeled shoes were first worn in the 10th century as a way to help the Persian cavalry keep their shoes in their stirrups. So horseback riding, it helped them, uh, yeah, keep their shoes in their stirrups. And at the end of the 17th century, the Persian Shah, or their like kind of equivalent of a, a king, sent a delegation of sol- soldiers to forge relations relations with European nations, uh, and the term like Persiamania was kind of used to describe this time period because a lot of these European aristocrats, kings, queens, nobles, fancy rich people, uh, adopted heels as a symbol of virility and military prowess. Um, and what I thought was super bonkers is so Louis 
the 14th uh, was perhaps the most famous wearer of heels in history. Uh, he, under his rule, the higher and redder the heel, the more powerful the wearer. And in, in 1670, he passed an edict that stated that only nobility could wear heels. So he outlawed anyone else from wearing heels besides nobility. Uh, and then in 1730, men kind of stopped wearing heels as a reaction against their perceived feminization. They started to become more f popular amongst women, um, except they continued to be acceptable for men to wear uh, in the context of cowboy boots. Like that's kind of the yeah yeah i think it's so funny though i can imagine just this he was a king right yeah he's a king this king who was like five two and trying to look good and oh yeah he was five calves. foot four inches okay, just four. uh trying to get his calves <laughs> pop in and probably some like peasant came in who'd worked up to get these shoes and he was looking tall and sexy and this fat king was like fudge yeah i need to outlaw shoes for sure <laughs> this guy is making me look bad like I can just imagine some petty thing but yeah so I had actually known of this fact because of my background in gender studies and I yeah it's, it is fascinating but a truth that heels were predominantly used by men and then the tides somehow just totally totally changed to where now when and if a man wears a heel it is very ostracized i would say mostly in most i would say in most communities um and is very feminized so if today i think a man wore a heel in specifically in western culture for sure you would probably get some looks or uh, people will, would maybe assume something which is fascinating because heels were historically developed for men yeah i gotta i gotta just refer people to uh google imaging louis the 14th king louis the for the 14th of france because his hair is extraordinary <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, it's just yeah uh just popping but yeah it's it's hilarious uh that yeah it is it is super ostracized yet it was this symbol of power uh for the, a while uh in in human history uh, with all the emphasis yeah. on the leg right so men at the time were wearing a lot of tights and a lot of like long socks um with the with the heels so they were really wanting to show off show off the leg was that what era of history was that during uh so that was in like the 1600s okay. uh yeah okay yeah, so like I think when was the French Revolution? The Victorian era. I gotta look. I'm the reason I'm asking because I'm thinking about what way, way women, before that. Yeah, the French Revolution was that. in 1700s, but it what said that in 1730 were? was when uh, women started more uh, more so wearing mm -hmm. heels. Yeah, yeah, such a phenomenal turnaround now. Uh, so one study that I looked at that I thought was pretty fascinating, um, it's called Occasions and Non-Occasions, Identity, Femininity, and High-Heeled Shoes. It was published in the European Journal of Women's Studies. Uh, you can look it up. Shouts out to the authors. There are four of them. Uh, and they focused on that performative sense of high heels and how gendered they are. 
in that if you want to perform as an acceptable woman, and so they're saying that when I say perform, they the theory is that in order to be perceived as woman, and maybe that my goal would be to perceive to be perceived as woman, that I would perform certain acts that would help me achieve that. And they they explain that for many women that would be wearing high heels, and especially in instances where that is most appropriate. So parties, gatherings, going out, those sorts of things, yeah. even work. And they presented the issue that despite this very common tendency for all of these women to have pain while wearing the shoes, that it has continued to perpetuate as a performative act that needs to be uh, that needs to be bought into in order to achieve femininity. So they said it's a major problem because all of these women are experiencing pain or many of these women are, are experiencing pain and yet it persists. Uh, so one quote that they had from one of their interviews from a woman who was explaining her experience of wearing heels, they were killing me, she says. They were absolutely killing me. And this was with a contorted face and a head had no other way uh, to take them off. And there were people all around me and there were other women. I couldn't take them off. And my feet were killing me, but I couldn't take them off. Uh, and I thought that this quote resonated because I've experienced this as a woman. I don't know, in, you talked about your experience in ice skates, but I would imagine it's like that plus hours mm -hmm. of tromping around in high heels. And man, yeah, I have had days at the end of like a 12-hour pageant day walking all over the mall or something like that. And you choose the most comfortable pair of heels that you can find, right? But height is important and you're in this ideal and you're trying to perform this act right to be perceived feminine and they are yeah they can just be so uncomfortable and it it persists so I thought that was fascinating research and uh rang true in my life as well here's a pretty yeah I mean it's just incredibly painful something that's even more painful and ridiculous in my eyes uh that's feet related and just kind of gleans a little or sheds a little light into just the bizarreness that can be humans um but in china a small foot in china uh no different from a tiny waist in victorian england uh represented the height of female refinement and i don't know if you guys have encountered the images at all that come with foot binding but it was pretty common for a while i don't know so i didn't i definitely don't know enough about it so i can't talk much on it i don't know if it's still practiced today or not but it involved like tying a girl's feet and contorting it to keep it as small as possible but i have seen i mean some images of it and it looks it's gnarly it's mm -hmm. not not pretty yeah, definitely. If you have never seen that or never heard of it, it's definitely far more grotesque than you're imagining. Yeah. It's tough to, to look at and grasp. But also, as um, that article, whatever you're reading, said, it's not very different than corsets in the Victorian area or even waist trainers today to a, probably a much lesser degree. 
but sure. it's just, you know, you're using, you're binding some part of your body to make it smaller and more appealing to that time period's beauty standards. And I think we've obviously, as we're talking about shoes, we're falling into this conversation about essentially fashion and social status, which mm. is, that's shoes, it sounds like forever and ever have been essentially, you know, a thing about social status showing. What is it about shoes? So Dre before this <laughs> said that the, the shoe is the most important, important part of any outfit. So yeah. what is it about shoes? Wait, wait, let me expand. He also said that it could make or break an outfit, but it could much more easily break an outfit. Right. Like the wrong pair of shoes yeah, can throw it's off over. the whole outfit. It's over. But the right pair of shoes can make anything look good. Yeah, you can roll out of bed in some sweats and just put on some nice quality whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to name drop any shoes right now. <laughs> yeah. Unless you guys want to sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> but just on some quality hype beast shoes or whatever it might be, whatever's hot at the time and bada boom, bada bing. Yeah. yeah. You look fantastic. Um I, I mean, to answer your question, I have no idea what it is about shoes. It sounds like this, right? It's this mm-hmm. whole history. There's something about shoes that have, status. yeah, humans have just always equated it to social status, whether it be King Louis or the Persians mm-hmm. or Chinese foot binding mm-hmm. or heels for men, cowboys, thinking it made them look strong and virulent or up to now women today where, you know, you have these long, sexy legs and you look I can't remember what the female version of virulent is, but you know, you just look more evolutionarily <laughs> sexually viable and all these yeah. things. And I know you can speak to it. Obviously probably maybe you can as a woman. Um, I just know that's kind of how like the general ideas of heels, but obviously now like heels have been starting to be kind of reclaimed a little bit where it's like, no, these heels aren't necessarily for guys to gawk at me but it's like women are starting to feel empowered and they're choosing to put themselves through some level of pain because they do feel empowered similar to like mm-hmm. i'm sure guys were in pain too back in the 1800s or whatever yeah, it was right. while they were wearing, right. right. wearing them yeah so yeah, yeah i hmm. think that there's truth to that i personally think that it's really hard to decouple like the pervasive nature of something or of pain specifically and the need for status uh i would like to believe that any woman who wanted to feel empowered and powerful like could do that without a pair of shoes however i also love to put on an awesome pair of heels and rock it and feel significantly more confident and sexy and feminine if I am wearing the right pair of shoes with the right outfit for the right venue. Uh, and so I think those, those are hard to uncouple. And mm-hmm. I do and have seen and heard friends or community um, kind of reclaim some that, yeah, it's not for men, like I'm doing this for me, which I totally resonate with. At the same time, though, I will find myself wanting to get all dressed up for a date or something and then I'm second guessing myself asking myself like oh well am I sexy enough if I don't put those shoes on when I know I'll be uncomfortable and that's where I think that problem is uh which could just be and probably is 
just on me and that story specifically, but I'm sure other women identify with that story too. One thing that I think, I mean, it definitely doesn't help with the uncoupling of things, but one thought I just had was with women wearing heels, uh, do you feel more powerful when you're wearing them? Because when I think about men and women and the height differential on average, like how men are on average taller, it does level the playing field somewhat. Yeah, I feel more powerful. I stand up taller. My shoulders are like more level or down. I carry mm-hmm. myself better. Um, I am also aware that like in standing up straighter, my chest is more protruding. And so I know that, um, well, women and men enjoy that, right? Like standing up straighter, feeling more confident also means that your breasts are more dominant and also your butt can also like can be sticking out more too. Uh, I don't think shoes, high heels are good for your back. I think I've seen research that has mm-hmm. said that, mm-hmm. but that they are good for your back. Are not good oh, for are your not. back, okay. yeah. but um, that they create this appearance of standing more tall and straight. Yeah, I definitely feel more powerful in, but uh, in, in some ways not. So Aiden and I visited Chicago a while ago, and we were walking home from the mm-hmm. bars late, mm-hmm. and I had worn a pair of heels out, and right. it. Uh, was yeah late and we were walking home and we were on like some dark shaded streets and I was pretty freaked out and so I in that moment was no longer feeling powerful and took my shoes off and walked home barefoot downtown Chicago because I was terrified that if something were to happen I would have to run and I cannot run in heels and I think those instances make me question like was I ever actually feeling powerful or was I feeling sexy? And has that been made to feel powerful for women? Like the most powerful I could ever get is sexy. And so mm-hmm. I better be good at that. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, I just, I don't know about uncoupling those yeah. two things because I don't think that a woman should have to be sexy to be powerful either. Yeah. Yeah. It is quite the entanglement. And I think I think there probably is some body psychology to it, like you're saying, like you're standing up tall chest out. We all know that there's power stances. Yeah. So it seems like high heels naturally put you in a power stance. So even if it is an illusion of power because you're actually less capable for right. less capable walk physically. Right. Running. Yeah. But yeah, that is kinda of interesting. There's also a kind of a funny little anecdote. The other day I was standing on my counter grabbing something and I yeah. looked down at um M and it was like, well, actually, she was up there first, and she's like, oh, you look like a toddler. Like, you're yeah. looking at me like a toddler. <laughs> and then we switched because I had to grab something. And I looked down at her, and I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, this is an interesting feeling. Like, if I were just, if I were still a human, but if I was just, like, 10 feet tall, and this is how I looked at people, I would, there would be, psychologically, there would be a tendency for me to think less of people. Like, think le- that you were less powerful. Not necessarily that I was better than you, but just, like, I have some sort of, commandment over people just because it was like such a weird and maybe this makes me sound like a crazy dictator or something i was like i like literally was looking down at him and i was just like if i looked and i just imagine if everybody looked like this they had to look up at you and they were looking so tiny like you would feel powerful and there's definitely something to that about heels for sure just literally having a little bit more verticality to you yeah yeah the height thing and the perspective is i mean real like i think most i don't know what the average height of a president of the united states is but most people in leadership tend to be tall Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I think that that would come through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just from your perspective to how you yourself perceive the world and then right. how you act in the world with others. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah, Cause obviously body psychology and all that type of stuff is really, really important. So if you're always looking over people's heads, like you feel mm -hmm. a little bit more versus you feel vulnerable looking up at people, people holding you in your arms, stuff like that. I think to even just like finishing up with, or maybe we can keep going with those. I'm not sure how much more we have to say, but it is to me, there definitely are, are these very two, um, contradicting but very vivid images to me with high heels there is this mm -hmm. image of like a kind of sexy woman who's like a little bit vulnerable because she's probably more scantily clothed and also physically less capable of running or doing anything that <laughs> uses your legs in an explosive manner yeah but then there's also this very vivid image in my head of like a woman probably maybe perhaps sexy maybe in like some like leather combat outfit but also in heels but like stepping like on a man's head or even like on his junk and like putting like her heel like on him like putting him below like i've i've seen these images repeatedly in our culture where like it is this vulnerability but it also maybe probably been reclaimed as this powerful thing where it's like i don't know and even like i feel like a lot of superheroes are heroine heroine like they wear heels sometimes and like people will comment on these wonder like, woman does she wear heels there is a she heel wears, on her boot there's a heel on her boot but isn't it's like a cowboy out. boot yeah. though right so even that like would that help you be a good superhero like you would think that would because those are designed for you to be in a stirrup in a stirrup <laughs> like yeah, why would you be running around jumping off of buildings in heel any type of heel it's probably the association with the power like why they would Right. Why they or would sexy and the I mean, yeah. it's probably the sexiest kind of sexy. Yeah, yeah, it's like the it's the Finance. it's the sexiness and the power. It's both. <laughs> I mean, there are <laughs> a lot in a lot of ways, kind of one in one in the same. Um, yeah, like it, sexiness and power is one in the same. Like you just said. In a lot of ways, I agree with that. Like, yeah, I mean the number. For men and women. For men and women. Yeah. yeah, like being attractive, they tend to become CEOs or like whatever it is. Um, yeah, you're looking skeptical. I'm just thinking, I mean, I, I think that being sexy can be advantageous in certain, I mean, areas and mm -hmm. maybe specifically for monetary power. Yeah. Being sexy can be advantageous, but I've been jerked around my whole life for being either too sexy or too plain, and I can't win. Like, yeah. especially in science and as a woman in science, I just I don't think that being attractive has helped me. I think it's hindered me in a lot of ways mm -hmm. because if I'm an attractive woman in science, I must not have much going on in my head, or yeah. I must be distracted. Or no one can talk to me without looking at my breasts. Or, I mean, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And I just, I mean, I can't say that being attractive has, like, hindered success. Yeah. Because I know there is research that shows that if you are considered, like, somewhat attractive or above some, yeah, whatever. People tend to treat you better. Right. People tend to treat you a certain way. But I don't, I don't know about being sexy. 
and like low yeah, key Yeah, sexy scientists. might be a strong word. Right. We were just talking about like recording an outro and uh, <laughs> and did, but like my first thought was, oh crap, I didn't know we were recording this on a video and like god forbid i'm wearing a low cut shirt and i am and so i mean these pieces that women often have to think about whether it's related to your heels and how that makes you feel sexy or not and power i mean i don't know that power and sexy are for sure like correlated and if they are i don't know i mean i don't think they should be you know yeah sometimes i wonder like I hear, I hear you, and there's a lot there. I think a lot of it is kind of the the female situation in our society, where there's a lot of male-dominated fields, and they, uh, like in the science example, they're afraid of different. Um, yet, like an attractive man scientist can, yeah, be do well, uh, which is yeah, definitely wrong and like needs to be uh yeah like spoken out against and 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 worked away from uh yeah i think that yeah it's just i mean it is fascinating though how much attractiveness and how much like even (laughs) combing your hair and wearing like good looking shoes and all these things can seriously change how people perceive and and uh treat you but one thousand percent and then i think it's just important to acknowledge the other side of that spectrum is that many people who are like desolately poor and are struggling like do not have access to shoes or or Mm-hmm. Uh, parents have to choose well we're not going to get kids shoes because they'll grow out of them um, and so there are just a lot more people also in the world who are barefoot and that's a really important to acknowledge that even to have a yeah. conversation about which su- which shoe might make you more or less sexy is like pretty privileged and I oh, know for a sure. lot of our conversations can lean that way because we live in a western world but and we I are pretty privileged yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't want to like I, I just want to be able to reference that. Yeah. yeah. What What do shoes mean to somebody in an area like that? Um. So I I can't speak from experience per se. What I can speak from is um, my experience traveling there, and I have experience both in Uganda and in Nicaragua. Nicaragua in Central America is the second poorest country in the world, next to Haiti. Um, and I think Uganda is somewhere in like the top 10. I'm not sure. I'd have to look about Uganda specifically. But uh, my first service project in Nicaragua was, I think, in 2006 or seven, And I think I was about 14 or 15. And I brought a suitcase of shoes to give away. And I brought them to an outpost community. I think we were near Dulce Nombre de Jesus. Um, which is outside of Samotillo, and uh, so quite a ways from the capital city of Managua, just for anyone who's a little bit familiar. And um, we handed out like these 10 or 15 pairs of shoes to primarily women, because I brought women's tennis shoes mostly that Mm -hmm. had been uh, heavily used already, but were still together. 
mostly from I have a lot of runners in my family so once a shoe is broken once you've gone like I don't know 500 or a thousand miles you guys could probably look that up you're supposed to move on to the next shoe especially if you're a marathon runner or something like that so I had a lot of used tennis shoes and when these women received shoes many of them whom were wearing uh, just like flip-flops or thong flip-flops mm-hmm. and I mean more than one of them just cried and said thank you so many times and just cried and cried and said thank you and from that experience I can imagine that having a a tennis shoe with a rubber sole that would completely cover their foot uh, and protect them and carry them throughout the day was I mean immensely appreciated and helpful so I would I would think that to answer your question, what would a shoe mean to someone like that? And it's specifically a tennis shoe that's like built for walking and day-to-day activity would mean a lot, would mean a lot. Yeah, I think we've talked about it a couple times. I think it was brought up in the context of like, of how people who tend to achieve scientific breakthroughs also have tended to come from wealthy families and having the bandwidth and the pri- the privilege to consider uh like the universe uh is is i see a lot of association to the privilege that we in in the the US or other wealthy nations have to consider oh this shoe or that shoe or um yeah i gotta get this pair and yeah i mean it is it is very very privileged and i think uh yeah like i don't know what what the answer would be um but well i do want to say um i think a lot of times people in the US will throw shoes away and so if you're hearing this cast I want to give just a, a public service announcement if you have a shoe that is connected and maybe there might even be like a hole in it or two especially if it's a tennis shoe uh, please please donate donate your shoes donate your used shoes yeah uh, you can donate them to your local Salvation Army and they might go to then like uh, homeless or discouraged sure. people in your own community. You can also donate to an organization called Give Shoes, and they distribute shoes, I think, primarily in Africa. We can link a couple of them in the show notes, but yeah. there are a lot of options for you to help in this area. Yeah. Uh, if you think about how many shoes you go through in your lifetime oh, in the United 100%. States, it's a lot, yeah. right? And you get, some people get new basketball shoes or volleyball shoes every year if it's a sport. And those shoes can do a lot of good somewhere in the world. So Oh, yeah. Huge, they can continue to serve someone else. And, huge PSA. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I'm, I'm going to use that to segue into one of my resources. So there was a TED Talk by Angel Change called The Wildly Complex Anatomy of a Sneaker. His, hold up. Mm. His name was Angel Change. Or sorry, Chang. Sorry. Chang. Okay. Um, I was going to say a, that's a awesome name yeah <laughs> um so women's shoe designer in china and i'm just going to kind of give you guys some stats and some things and sure. i'll get into some of the donation type of stuff and the carbon footprint that yeah. shoes leave so the u.s buys most most sneakers in the world 
on average, we buy three pairs per year, each individual. Wow. 23 billion shoes are made per year, mostly in China and Southeast Asia. One fifth of fashion industry carbon emissions are from sneakers. Sneakers specifically, not all shoes. Yes, and wow. I believe the other one was also sneakers as well. Twenty-three billion sneakers. Sorry. One fifth of say that again. One fifth Holy of fashion cow. industry carbon emissions are from sneakers. Wow. Sneakers equal three hundred and thirteen metric tons of carbon dioxide per year. That's equivalent to sixty-six million cars' annual emissions. Um, they're made up of the heel, the insole, the midsole, and the upper, and that takes a lot of energy and fossil fuels and that of course leads to greenhouse ga gases some of the materials that they um create with shoes is polyester or create shoes with is polyester nylon latex and polyurethane most of those are pretty destructive to the environment um, they also tanning leather uses chromium which is a carcinogen the outs the outside goes through a process called vulcanization of the rubber to make it elastic and sturdy, which is high energy. They add sulfur and it's superheated with raw rubber. Often includes uh, so shoes often include or sorry um, the outsole often includes a natural rubber oil, but an or sorry a natural rubber but also oil and coal byproducts. Producing the materials is 20% of the carbon footprint. 60% of the carbon footprint comes from the manufacturing. Everything essentially is made in separate factories, but then the transporting the pieces is where all the CO2 com really comes from in this industry. The transporting all the pieces. Like, yes, because yeah. they're all in different factories, all in different countries, cities, etc. So there's all these you know, trucks and boats and all this transporting them mm -hmm. so that they can be assembled. Uh, yeah, it's it's wild if you see i mean most products have incredibly complex supply chains so that, like the Dude, that don't happen yeah, here mm -hmm. that don't happen here in the US. right yeah right wow. for sure and keep stop me if anything you guys got anything to say or well, anything I think a it. couple things so far go ahead gone through my mind go ahead i would say first and foremost three pairs of shoes a year is a lot like I would and argue, I would say too many. Yeah. <laughs> unless, you're, unless you're a maybe a marathon runner and you do put those five hundred or thousand, I don't know what it right, is, but right. that recommended amount of miles, and you're really concerned for that. Yeah. Three pairs of shoes is a lot of tennis shoes. Mm. Is a lot yeah. of shoes in a year. I think I maybe go through a pair every three or four years, depending on how much running I do, and even then I wear I them. Yeah, I think I probably point. go every three or four years. So that was one for, thought. And I think one. related yeah. to that thought, I would say, uh, if that's you, check yourself. <laughs> if you are buying three pairs of shoes, think about the facts that Dre just said. There's a lot of emission we're talking about, carbon emission we're talking about, and a lot of misuse of natural resources. So I think if there is something that you can do to mitigate your shoe purchasing, yeah. maybe think about that. Uh, and if you are for sure addicted to your three pairs of shoes a year, you don't need nine pairs of shoes in three years. So make sure you're donating those other six pairs because that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's for sure. totally wild. Along with the process is there's cutting, there's pouring, baking, cooling, gluing, and then stitching. Assembly, so this is the assembly process, is 20% of the carbon footprint. And then, of course, there's labor abuse, which many of us have heard of, like, you know, yeah, not good things with the child right. labor and all that stuff. 
So there's little to no protection laws. Um, most of the companies, like these big sneaker companies, they don't own these factories or the manufacturing or anything like that. They're outsourcing all this stuff. So yeah, it's like they like say Nike or Adidas, whoever they don't own them so they don't make the laws and then also that makes it so that the u.s doesn't really have any sort of regulations or anything right. that we can do not that they would do anything anyway but that's another story um most of these people of course are going to be working below minimum wage sometimes pennies a day dollars a month um a couple dollars a month and then they're also being exposed to toxic chemicals for example like the glue fumes are really toxic um, the, so the durability thing that you're talking about. So in general, if you run about 20 miles a week, they should last you about six months. So if you are kind of a 20 mile a week runner or whatever, then maybe you do get two pairs of sneakers. That's true. Um, a year, which you, you know, you referenced that. Mm-hmm. Um, for, Hang on. Oh, go ahead. Pause there because, uh, Aiden and I were doing some research on, the amount of steps that average Americans make. Okay. And let me tell you, it is not 20 miles a week. <laughs> it's actually closer to anywhere between one and 3,000 steps a day, which is one mile a day, about. I mean, I'm averaging here. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing one mile a day, a third of that, yeah. it's about a third of that, which means one pair of shoes should absolutely last the average American one year yeah. at least. Uh, so I think just touching on that is is important because not many of us are putting on that many miles. Yeah, you're getting a little bit fired up about this, and I definitely understand why. And like I'm with you, it's interesting because I'm definitely it's definitely throwing me off a little bit. Like it's taking me back a little bit, and maybe it's just because I have a decent amount of shoes. Yeah. I don't think I buy three pairs a year, but I don't know. I have shoes and. I'm like, I'm trying to like think of this in real time. I'm like, yeah. huh, like, is this, cause I do appreciate a good looking shoe. Yeah. Is this something that I really, really need to consider? Which I, it sounds like, I feel like everything you're saying, I think is true and right. I'm like, yeah, th- this is something we should consider as a culture, a culture who is contributing to an incredibly spiraling climate change catastrophe that's going to be out of the way if we don't make a lot of these big changes yeah. and we're obviously this whole thing is about the carbon footprint and this is not a small contribution like this is a big deal especially when you bring up the transportation these large ships mm-hmm. polluting the um environment and destroying the atmosphere and all that good stuff or bad stuff yeah. um well, so and i i mean i will say too i think i said earlier i have probably have owned 30 pairs of shoes yeah like three of those are tennis shoes maybe six pairs of sandals, and then the rest are boots or high heels. Now, I think living in Minnesota maybe changes things a bit because we do have huge swings in climate change, and so I have or just, several... Yeah, climate, or, not, yeah, climate, climate, not yeah. climate change. We do have, well, changing climate. Anyways. Changing yeah. weather. <laughs> weather, uh, yeah. yeah weather seasons. Weather. Yeah. And so for us, like I have to own, or I would say like it's more common than to own a negative 20 like a sub-zero super cold boot and then a a less like a less insulated boot especially if you're doing things like ice fishing and sports outside yeah i mean so i think that that's part of it so you can you can maybe console yourself some there but then i would also say i've accumulated those shoes over my whole almost my whole life like my feet have been the size that they are now since seventh grade yeah so for me you can average that over like quite a few years and know that 
too. Many of them are for different seasons. Now I'm not saying everyone needs 30 pairs of shoes. I would say I, I could probably get rid of half. That'd be a good challenge for myself. But I think just specifically to tennis shoes through a year, that seems just wild. Yeah, specifically to tennis shoes. Because, yeah, I don't know too much about other things. But, yeah, like you're, like you're alluding to, too, there are shoes that I wear not so frequently i mean i might wear them just for a handful of occasions whether it be like hiking my hiking shoes uh or yeah i mean whatever it might be there are like more specific shoes that those can last a really long time right like because i just don't use them so often so they don't wear out Mm -hmm. but yeah tennis shoes i mean if you think about it what that just shows me uh, too is just how freaking powerful individual choice is at scale so if most people if the average for the u.s was one pair of sneakers mm-hmm. a year Unless instead of three miles, i do just want to emphasize that yeah because i like if i had the money to spend lavishly on the things that would increase the healthfulness of my life i would spend way more lavishly than i do yeah, uh, pending like ho- hoping that it, the environmental impacts weren't outweighing the mm-hmm. health impacts. But yeah, I just wanted to say that. Yeah, yeah. And like old. If you're using old shoes for some sort of sport, it's dangerous, or it can be dangerous. So it's not it's right. not reasonable for you to want a new pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think yeah a couple of things, uh, but like yeah, I I think the main one is just as consumers. We have power and like what we spend money on to um, or what we don't spend money on uh, has a pretty phenomenal impact. I mean, like you were saying, like if we if the average American consumes one pair of sneakers a year, some people who only need them once every three years and some people who need them more often that balances out to like one sneaker a year. That would cut that twenty percent of the carbon emissions to a third of that. Mm-hmm. Like that's huge. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's just fascinating to think about like the math at, at scale and just it, it works out if that's what people chose. So yeah. Right, um, and I know it can be tough with like trying to make a personal decision, and it's. I mean, I've, I've like kind of quasi try like a minimalist type of life where like mm-hmm. you're you just have like less clothes you have less things you have less sh- whatever um, i remember i don't know what it was five six years ago i was like you know what like i like wearing the same clothes like throughout the week but like, yeah. you guys have probably noticed like I, you probably guys see me in similar clothes <laughs> yeah. usually when you see me yeah. but um or if you like are following my instagram you're probably gonna mm-hmm. see me posting the same i like my the shirts i like i like the pants i like i like the shoes i like i like those yeah. are the ones i want to wear <laughs> i don't care to have but my biggest thing is not that I shop a lot. It's mostly just that I like keep the clothes that I had because then they get sentimental value because I worn them so much. So most of my clothes are just clothes throughout the years. But my point is, it, like something trying like something like minimalism or just cutting down on your sneaker buying or sh- whatever it is, it can be really difficult with the society that you live in, specifically oh, yeah. with like business attire and stuff like that. Because you your company is not gonna want you to come in wearing the same things every single day. They're going to want you to have the newest, the best, the most diverse type of clothes. And that's, I mean, that's an issue as a culture. 
because that doesn't really say anything about you. There's no reason why. What it says about you is that you don't care about climate change. Like that's what it says about you. So right. it's just like it's it's a really it's messed up. It's backwards. But it, I do have yeah. sympathy for people who are just like, yeah, it sounds good, but it's like, yeah, I live in America in 2021. Yeah. Well, a couple. I just want to make a couple of comments, and mm-hmm. maybe this is outside the box for some people, but because I grew up with so many siblings, and specifically there were four girls in my in my family, and my mom, between the five of us, we could kind of have a rotating closet, and I don't think it's so common for, especially if you grew up as the only child or the only girl in a family or the only boy, uh, and depending on, I mean, lots of other circumstances, you probably maybe didn't grow up sharing clothing but I just I want to invite you to maybe consider it if even if it feels outlandish like my very best friend Gabby uh, who maybe you heard about on another cast but her and I will rotate clothes sometimes if I'm sick of my summer wardrobe uh, we used to be like close to the same size mm-hmm. um, and yeah we I would be like oh man I'm sick of like these 20 things I don't want to get rid of them because they have sentimental value and I want them back but would you be willing to trade me like 20 things for these 20 things and I'm serious we've like rotated stuff out so I had a whole new wardrobe one summer mm-hmm. and she did too and so I would encourage people to think outside of the box about that because you're right it's hard to keep up with these standards especially in the yeah. US but I would say I would think that I I've gotten creative in some ways to yeah. meet those standards and also be more sustainable whether it's trading with Gabby or a sister so even right now I can think of like five dresses that are in my older sister's closet and I know my baby sister Kirsten has a couple of my things and mm-hmm. I mean that yeah. yeah that's helped and I know not everyone has sisters but you can totally friends. do that with friends yeah I I have some friends who did that and I was, I it piques my interest. I was like, oh, that's a, a good idea. Having a, a clothing swap. Shoes is, shoes are a little tricky because there's, I mean, the si- the sizings are more particular, uh, and they also wear out uh, pretty. I mean, okay. eventually. But yeah, I mean, the the clothing swap for sure. I think is a great idea, and to continue on the reduce, reuse, recycle uh, train. I think uh, one thing that I've found immense value in is going just uh, bargain shopping for used clothes or yeah. uh, like, man, I think got three pairs of shorts for less than 10 bucks yeah. <laughs> the other day uh, and they fit awesome and are, are in good shape and saved me a lot of cash, saved the environment a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's like one uh, other piece. And I think... Um, on a broader scale uh one thing that one conversation that i know is being had and i don't know how much progress as common scientists it might uh interest you and and make you want to do a little more research but i think that there's more conversation about uh bringing supply chains closer to home uh and reducing a lot of these transportation costs given the covid pandemic like we didn't in, in the U.S., we didn't have access to masks for a while because they were all produced overseas. And if, like, there's disease and things that interrupt it, it, it's advantageous and less environmentally harmful to have things close to home. So that's, like, another uh, cool development, I think, that has come somewhat from COVID. But, yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. That is cool. I like that too for the carbon stuff and for like the um, labor abuse stuff because I'm a little cynical, but I think the U.S. in general is just kind of hiding behind. Oh, like that's China. We can't do anything like, you know, a little bit. So I would definitely love for more of our companies, factories and stuff to come back so that obviously for jobs, but then so we as a country can decide what our what do we want our legacy to be? What do we want our carbon footprint to be? and not just kind of pass the buck. And just to finish up with this um, TED Talk from Angel Chang, just exactly what we're talking about. So the recyclability of everything, 20% of these shoes, these sneakers get incinerated, horrible for the environment. 80% are just in the landfill and it takes an average of a thousand years to biodegrade. Yeah. Wow. No, people throw shoes away. They're like, oh, these have a couple of holes in them. But uh, those are still donatable to many organizations. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you'll yeah. feel better doing it, too. Yeah. <laughs> what a cast. I feel we better doing it. have gone from Utsi 3,300 years ago, discovered in the Appalachian Mountains, all the way to men wearing heels, starting with men to have their feet in stirrups staying where they're supposed to stay riding horse. From there, we traveled into the gender norms of shoes, and then finally some of the uh, problems associated with shoe wear. Somewhere in there, we talked about basketball also. Mm. (laughs) But needless to say, there's a lot more common science behind the shoe than I would have thought prior to research for this cast. And maybe this will push you a little bit to ask questions in your world about your shoe use and your shoe wearing and hopefully uh, challenge you to do a little common science in your life about what's on your feet. Hey, common scientists. Hope you enjoyed the cast. Thanks for investing in common science. We hope it brought as much value to you as it did to us. To learn more, smash the subscribe button and visit our website, commonscientists.com, where you can read our blog, join our email newsletter, and follow us on social media. Finally, if you like what we have to say, you can absolutely support us on Patreon. We can always use more support. You can navigate there also from our website, commonscientists.com, common scientists with an S, so that we can continue cultivating a community of common scientists.